The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. There we go. Hello, everybody. Uh, it's good to see you guys this morning. Uh, a lot of uh, things going on here in, in my heart and in yours. I pray that the Holy Spirit would would speak to all of us this morning. I remember uh, being a uh, <laughs> strange memories from my sordid past, and I, I don't want to dwell on it, but I remember sitting on my rug in about four o'clock in the morning at UVA, watching the world spin around me under a certain, uh, shall we say, alcoholic haze. And I was uh, from a kind of a, a little bit of a wild family. They were partiers and had a great time, hard, hard partiers a little, but they never wanted that for me. Isn't it funny? They never wanted that for me, but I just bypassed their thinking on that and began my own life. And uh, it, it wasn't really working uh, very well. And so one night I walked down my hall at the uh, dorm and I knew some people were in a certain room and I walked by. And I walk by this tiny little room, and uh, I hear some voices, and I hear the name Jesus Christ. Someone said, Jesus Christ. And some of you know this story. I walked in, I said, you rang? <laughs> yeah, it got that kind of response. It was like, that always gets a laugh with the boys at the fraternity house or over here somewhere, but... There was nothing but crickets chirping when I finished my little sad, and as it turned out, sick attempt at humor when you realize that what I didn't know was I had entered into a Bible study. A tiny, small group of people, maybe four or five people, who were utterly committed to Christ. And there was a smile on their face of welcome and the idea of joining, but I was like backing out of the room. This is not the place for me. Segway to another thing. This morning, what we are doing is another one another, but the one another, and the reason I brought up that little moment is because that was a small group. It was a, a tiny cell group, some call them. There are a thousand names for these things, but they're just uh, homes, uh, environments, little tiny caves where people gather together in love like the early church did in catacombs and homes. I, I was going to say this later, but for the first 200 years of the church's uh, existence, there were no known large buildings where they gathered. Probably they didn't want to gather in large groups because the country they were dealing with and the, the systems that were going on are very similar to some of the nations we're we're watching on the kind of universal screen of human experience here in the United States and in, in foreign lands and, and Christians and a, a kind of a God that is not Caesar is not really viewed in a positive way. And so here these little tiny groups would meet somewhere and it was, it was intimate, it was friendly, it was uh, hospitable. And uh, Peter, we're going to read some uh, passage from uh, 1 Peter, but the, the key phrase in what we're looking for in this time of persecution he's dealing with is show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This was a time of uh, crazy persecution. Nero was, at this point in, in Peter's life, he's, this is probably written around 62 or 63 AD. Peter is probably five or six years from the end, the end of his life. And you'll remember, he's so honored and loved, 
loved his Savior and his Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, that when he was taken out to be executed, they were going to crucify him. And he said that I would rather be crucified upside down so I am not crucified in the same way as my glorious master. This kind of thought, this kind of thinking. He, he was not worthy of dying the way his Lord did. It was so important to him. And his taste of heaven, he's seeing that right beyond this portal in this moment, there is a God in heaven who is going to welcome me home, gave him steel for that particular battle in that moment. You'll remember perhaps those of you that have seen the robe. How many of you have seen Richard Burton, Gene Simmons, the robe? Just old, sorry, I don't don't mean to say you're old. I'm just speaking of myself. It's a beautiful film if you ever get to see it. And Burton is a Roman legionnaire. He's a centurion. And he and Gene Simmons have come to Christ, basically. They've given their life to Christ, and they're going to go out and, and be executed. God bless them. And you see them walk out, and the way the director does this, it's almost as if they're going from execution, which is not shown, to glory. It's as if there's a cloud of glory around them and witnesses watching. At the end, the end of their mortal life, they see and feel immortality and following Christ. Following Christ is more important than everything, more important than all the silly phrases an idiot can utter when he goes into a small group or the spinning room when he's tormenting himself with an overabundance of booze, this kind of thing. That's nothing. That pales into insignificance in in light of this wonder that transforms the human soul as it did mine. That was the beginning of my walk with Christ, that crazy, stupid moment, because I saw in these people's lives, in the small group's life, a difference, a qualitative difference and a sense of joy and purpose in their souls. And at a time of persecution, as our dear friends in the Ukraine are going through, we need hope. We may not have much hope for this world, but in the world to come, the gospel declares the good news is we can have life everlasting, not based on our performance, but on his performance in our behalf, on his death and uh, 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 to take away our sins, and then his resurrection to carry us and be up with him in a whole new world, as the song goes. This was a time of persecution. Nero would light Christians on fire and light his gardens with them. Uh, he uh, uh, was bringing a very fearful note and a fearful time in, and what a moment it was, however, for the church, because seeing heaven's joy just before them and knowing no matter what they did, they may have a very dark ending facing them in that particular hour, they gladly died and gave their lives for the sake of the gospel, and one way they had knit together was through the small groups that they had joined. Now, What I want to say here is three things, basically. The time is short. The time life is. The time we have is short. We need to love. And I believe in the glory and the efficacy of small groups. The time is short. We need to love the glory and efficacy of small groups. You know, the smallest group I go to regularly, quite often, every day, is that one that is with my wife. It's just my wife and myself. And that has a golden aura around it. We say premaritally to people, no one gets in. 
Well, everybody gets in, but really, in the privacy and sanctity of the relationship, nobody really gets in. You guys know me. I thank you for your love, but that, that's sacrosanct. That's a sacred place, and it's a place of beauty and encouragement and honestly wonder. Just knowing her and loving her, knowing that life doesn't have that many more, uh, much more mileage for me and her gives us hope that this beauty can, is, can uh, uh, and this walk with the third person in our relationship, the Lord Jesus Christ, can be uh, not only transformed, but, uh, but illuminated in another moment as we go forward. We need to love are we loving our wives? Are we loving our children? Are we loving in this moment using the small group that is not only the marriage, but the family in the most positive of ways? And, and do you believe in the glory and efficacy of small groups? I don't want to make it a legalistic kind of thing, but almost at every turn and touch of my life, I have been involved in small groups that gave me hope, that gave me accountability, that showed me example, and beauty. First Peter 4, 7 through 11 said, the end of all things is all hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Well, what does that mean? It may mean a number of things. It may mean that Peter knew that his life was not going to be lived much longer. I think that is one of the soundest approaches to this. Wayne Grudem, the great systematic theologian, thinks it, it goes this way. The end of God's plan of redemption has occurred. All things are ready for Christ to return and rule. And rather than uh, thinking of everything in terms of earthly kingdoms and what king is born and what is the sequence of events and all, the simplicity of what we can understand is our redemptive history. God has been working his purposes out in the earth. He has created us. We have fallen and can't get ourselves back up. He called Abraham out of, of, of uh, uh, into his life, into beginning a kingdom called the Jewish people. They exodus, they left Egypt. That's symbolic of leaving the world, the flesh, the devil, and following Christ. Uh, that drama is going on. There are acts after acts. There's the creation, the fall, the calling of Abraham, the exodus from Egypt, the kingdom of Israel, the exile in Babylon, the return and birth of Christ, his life, death, resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit to establish the church. All of church history has seemed to pass and we're, in a sense, in the last moments of whatever this transition is. And Peter says, even though he's probably speaking of his individual death, and the fact that we're all going to die, hopefully, and rise with, as, as the Lord Jesus Christ did. Right here, the church's history, the Christian church is only about 30 years old when he's saying, the end is near. Now, I would just take this as not shock trauma, but more than a gentle nudge that our lives should be lived soberly and sanely and thoughtfully, that we should take each step with some purpose and uh, knowing that the end of the age could happen at any time in whatever way it is, be sane and sober and be hospitable. In verse eight, it says, above all things, keep loving one another earnestly. Not fakey, not silly, but earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins. There's a key in wisdom in this 
a slight momentary passage, that love and understanding the grace of God extended to you makes everything better, everything, on the job, in the home, and in the culture. Love covers all of our junk. And then, very importantly, he says in verse 9, and it's the central verse of this particular morning, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality, in a sense, is the Christian's duty and his blessing. Again, the early church, they met from house to house. They met in different places in the fellowship of the church. And Peter's emphasis on hospitality to one another in the household of faith is contiguous. It is right in line with the whole early teaching of Scripture. I think Philip, the deacon, had, a, had his daughters there worshiping the Lord in his home, and people would come in. Uh, Cornelius' gathering. There's all kinds of uh, gatherings uh, uh, and places that people met. And, and elders were uh, commanded to be hospitable. They were to have an open home, open hearth policy. They were known for that. That's what they did. Widows in the church who were to be enrolled and given some kind of support had to be known for washing the feet of the saints. All this was part and parcel of Jesus' land, Jesus' talk, Jesus' life. Each and every person was to be part of the fellowship of believers, and within that fellowship, they were to exhibit their particular spiritual gifts or give, give, given uh, 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 um, uh, gifts that they gave. As each has received a gift, the scripture says in verse 10 here, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. That means he, he speaks prophetically as if he's, he's the voice of God in that particular moment. There's just a dwelling in the internal heart on, Lord, what are you saying? What are you doing? What should I do? How can I behave and perform in this particular thing? Or further than that, please live your life out through me. Whoever serves, if you're a servant and you know it, that's the way God's made you in the totality of your being. He that would be great among you must be servant of all. Serve by the strength that God supplies, not in your own strength. That will reduce the grumbling in a massive way if you trust the Lord moment to moment in your small group experience or in your church experience or in your job experience. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him. Belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 200 years without a large church, and somehow there was massive growth in the small little units that made up the church in that particular time. The world was changed by these people. Something was going on that was simply wasn't religious. It was far more than religious. It was supernatural. Hey, buddy, it's good to see you here this morning. Um, churches were in places like houses like uh, Aquila and Priscilla's house. They were at Manason of Cyprus's house. They were different places. And the Lord Jesus said this about letting people come into the circle of our hospitality. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was a stranger. And you took me in. 
I had a friend who gave her whole life to missions. She lived in a tiny apartment. It's been many years uh, since she went to be with the Lord. And she was, I think she was a member of Fourth Presbyterian Church over in Maryland. Not an important, important point, but she opened her apartment to anyone who would come. And over many years, the place just began to expand, not from just a small group, but from a large group, just because she created a loving Christ-like atmosphere in that place. And numerous people came to faith in Jesus Christ. In our church for many years, we've had a, a little Bible study run by Carolyn Carroll and Ines Bryant. Year after year, they just keep it going in the hopes that people will hear about the Lord Jesus and have their lives transformed, and that grows. You know, my wife, she has been so blessed by you guys in terms of the small group interactions during COVID. I, th I did the numbers. I did this whole long sheet, and, and I believe she is involved in seven Zoom groups, uh, most of them related to either Bible study or book clubs, where largely the women in some cases in her C.S. Lewis Institute group, they meet and talk about things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Not only that, they love one another, they talk to one another, they pray for one another with a vision and a hope that more will come to, to know the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you know I talk about Alan and Wedemeyer who aren't here this morning, but they're small group. They came to my small group and I was so incompetent at leading my small group that they knew there was hope for anybody to lead a group. I would just say, here's what, and this is part of my teaching, if you ever do a small group, what really works, first of all, let me say this, small groups should be, Mark can correct this at another time, at least two or three per people gathering together for uh, the, the process of worship. And in that time, you, you could expand it, but it's a small group for a reason. You don't want a massive group that will overwhelm you and cause you to lose a little bit of hope. The Wedemeyers came to my group. They heard what I did, which was really simple. We would have some subject matter. Maybe it was mere Christianity or a Bible verse or whatever. I would ask them how their week went, each individual. And that allowed them to talk about their real lives and feel that they were known and understood and loved. It was just that simple. There was no more. I'd gone through every small group book known to man, and they all sorted out to some kind of question that led to, what did you do this week? And so we began to interface and know each other deeply. And in some cases, I was in accountability groups. I, I spent my life in accountabilities. My sins, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. But the waves of the habits and uh, difficulties of living in this world, I had to face honestly and openly with at least one other person. So that small group and that kind of interaction was vital for me. It is to this day, I am always in accountability. Always. <sighs> Scripture says when two or three are gathered in his name, he's there in the midst. He's there right in the midst. We started as extremely young people, maybe 23 years old, with two other couples in our first small group. One was uh, the Hans. Uh, some of you know the Hans. Another one was a couple named the McGraws. We met in our little tiny uh, place between two bowling alleys in Falls Church, Virginia, and we would pray together and talk with one another. 
and we enjoyed each other's fellowship, but we were missional in our thinking. I had come to Christ. We wanted to reach our world. It was in our genetics. It was the way God was putting us together. And so the McGraws were there, no children yet. The Hans were there, no children yet. But we came out of those groups, and each one of us took over, created an expanding small group. Jim McGraw ended up being the, the small group. He was a professional psychologist and a youth mentor. He became the small group pastor, I think, in several churches. You, you go, a lot of you will know Grace Covenant, not so far from here. He was their main man, and it all came out of, stemmed out of our small group. He then started his own small group. He studied, he was gifted, and God expanded him. He's still doing small groups. We were just with him. And here's part of the thing. These relationships were just not for a moment. They were for life. They stayed together, and they continued to encourage us. Rick Hahn was similar. Jim is still doing small groups and, and a guru over them. He gave me some new material even recently. Rick Hahn, same thing. In our early church, a church that was called Christian Assembly, it no longer exists in a certain sense, but he and, and I and others began small groups. They expanded. They got too large too large, where they became unwieldy and people couldn't be heard. They became like little worship services. That's not what we're looking for. We're looking for just brothers and sisters getting together, loving one another, having a discipline, maybe hour together. Often you meet in the first few weeks of the thing to get to know one another. Maybe you meet four weeks in a row. Maybe you meet six weeks in a row. But, but, but our gauge in the culture is these kinds of groups should only meet about twice a month. That's my thinking. Mark can correct me when he's up here uh, preaching in a few weeks. Um, I don't want to overwhelm an overwhelmed people. But the fellowship in these things can be so rich that it actually is an encouragement and a strengthening for you. Peter says the end is near, and he's saying, do something with the life that you had. The McGraws did something. Let me uh, tell you that I went to a, a group. You, you don't have to be perfect. Uh, uh, quite the opposite. I, I was in a group, and some of you have heard this story, but it bears repeating. A uh, guy out of prison ran the group. There were a half dozen of us there the night someone took me to the thing. And there was a young man over here. He was a genius. His dad was some kind of big engineer down at Langley. You guys know what I mean, those of you that are in that world. And these are, these are brainiacs, unbelievably so. And I'm there in the room, and I asked them a certain question. And they said they would pray for me. And this one boy, feeling that the Lord is speaking to him prophetically. Yes, I believe in that. I believe that God speaks to us and through us. I do. I've experienced it, not just once, many times. He begins to pray for me and then begins to prophesy. Let's call it what it is. He goes, and you take this for yourself. There's Alan Ann. He said, my son. My son, the first two words stuck with me probably more than anything else that was said. My son, that I was actually a son and child of the king. But here's where it went. I am going to send you to thousands of people. You are going to preach the gospel, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> that no more had entered my mind. If God, if God was speaking to this guy and through this guy, he hadn't sent me the letter. I had not been copied on the memo. That was not in the way I thought about anything in life without getting into that. And he begins this thing, and there was a number attached to me. I thought I wasn't hearing right. It just seems strange. This was new to me. 
I got to see him a day or two later. Could you repeat roughly what you said? I want to write this down. The my son thing, it stuck with me so deeply. But this other idea, you guys know my story. I have preached on the street, Kennedy Center, Lisner Auditorium, uh, Shakespeare Folger Library Theater, on and on to thousands of people, not through any of my own doing, but through a master plan where he was moving me as a chess piece in the world that I was living in. Do you not know he has the same wonder and plan for you if you will follow him? Truth. And I got my information from a young man with courage who was only about 21 years old in a small group, in an intimate set, setting, in a, an imperfect world and with an imperfect group of people. Last story, there was a little couple whose name were, were um, it was Bob and Marilyn White. I got to meet them probably 40 years ago. Uh, they met in a, a house in Annandale, I believe. He was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. I didn't really know them. We went to their small group. Sometimes we were the only ones at the small group, just Melanie and I and them. I was on a staff of a church at that time, and we would go out and visit and show the flag and try to encourage people. But I always left encouraged by them. They had such a gift for hospitality, which is simply generosity residing in a home. It was a beautiful thing. They were just wonderful people, and their heart was for missions. God had created them for uh, outreach through uh, missionaries, and they always would invite them to the house. Long story short, ultimately through a, a tangled web of wonder, they were part of developing seven churches in Egypt, basically through out of their house and divine providences where Bob, who flew for the Air Force, blah, 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 got to meet people. He worked for Booz Allen. They would send him certain places. And he was able to help a pastor go from one church to seven. And that pastor, Nathan George, he became one of your missionaries. But it wasn't just him. When Washington for Jesus happened with hundreds of thousands of people there, Maryland, part of a little tiny small group, was the one who administrated all those who were foreign. There was a supernatural calling on our life. There was a helpful tiny group that we were all there at night watching Marilyn as her head hit the desk as she fell asleep while putting out the invitations and developing the places where people could stay. Here's what I'm saying. God changes his world through his people. He has a plan and a purpose for your life. The end of all things as at hand. Have you joined your heart somewhere in your world with a couple believers just to pray with you and encourage you? Good things happen in the unity and beauty of interaction and fellowship in the body of Christ. We do not meet together in these groups to withdraw. We go in to refuel for the battle. Small groups, what are we trying to do? We want to show hospitality to one another without grumbling, knowing that the time is short and we need to love, starting first with our spouse and then our small group, and then the world. And I think I've expressed to you in my feeble way the glory and the efficacy, the usefulness of small groups in any area and working through churches. Let's bow our heads to pray. Lord, 
We thank you for this morning. We know what the gospel is. It's, uh, uh, God created us to be with him. Our sins have separated us from the Lord. Sin cannot be removed by good deeds. Paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again. Everyone who trusts in him alone has eternal life. Life with Jesus starts now and lasts forever. He is a savior and he comes into the lives of people who want life and that abundant. Father, this thy people, if any of them hunger to be with you forever, paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again on our behalf and everyone who trusts in him alone has eternal life. If that makes sense to anyone here that their sins can be forgiven, that they can have life with Jesus forever, let them right now say, Jesus, take my life and make it be wholly given unto thee. If you pray that prayer, he's heard it, he's received you, and you are with and part of a small group called the body of Christ, and you are an inheritor of eternal life by faith through grace plus nothing. Amen.